a recent report in one of the medical journals called out that uh, the rates of heart disease are increasing beyond our ability to tackle them. Uh, evolution was never ready for the last 50 years of, of bad food. Most people are asymptomatic. They don't really feel anything or show symptoms. Mm. So you really don't know about this problem until you're dead. If you can do things to stop your score rising in the next few years, and that means you've stopped the inflammatory processes that drive calcium, then you can change your future and live probably as long as anyone else without disease. Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body, Mind and Power podcast. I'm your host, Seamland, and our guest today is Ivor Cummins. Ivor is a medical researcher who has a degree in chemical engineering, and he's contributing a lot to the study of heart disease prevention. He's written some books, given a lot of speeches, and been involved in several documentaries about battling modern diseases. Ivor, I'm glad that you could make it to the podcast, and I want to welcome you. Thanks, Sim. It's great to be here. It's, it's my pleasure as well. So you're doing a lot of traveling and giving speeches so in many health conferences. What has been your schedule like recently? Where, where have you been over the past few weeks? Well, the past uh, month or two, I was in KetoCon in Texas, Austin in the US. And then I more recently went to KetoFest in uh, Nor New London, in North Carolina, and Ancestral Health Symposium in Montana and low-carb San Diego and uh, the west coast of the USA and a, a few more. I've been traveling a lot. <laughs> Sounds a lot of, there's a lot of keto stuff going on in the States especially. Yeah, it seems to be really trending. I, I'm more low-carb myself with a lot of fasting and intermittent fasting, so I would go in and out of ketosis. I'm not so much the ultra-high-fat keto, mm. but, but keto seems to be the really trending thing at the moment. Yeah, yeah, there are definitely at least some uh, similarities across all these diets like paleo and keto. Mm. Yeah, I think paleo is a little higher carb, but, but the principles are very similar, of course, yeah. Mm. And the paleo guys kind of take out dairy and anything that wasn't there 10,000 years ago, whereas low-carb and keto are more accommodating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, but I'm not sure how many cavemen got to eat like paleo bars with honey and uh, some dates <laughs> or something. <laughs> that is a very good point. And I'm sure they didn't have ketone esters and uh, medium chain triglyceride oils and all this stuff either. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But have you noticed like any similarities or common patterns among these places and conferences? How are the people there? Are they similar or they are they completely different? Yeah, they're pretty keto and low carb is where I've mainly been. I've never been to Paleo FX, but generally they're the similar type of people. They're very focused on their health. They want to avoid chronic disease. They want to lose weight. And uh, they're generally a really nice bunch of people. But I think because they're health focused, they'd like to help everyone else as well with all the right answers. They're, mm -hmm. they're explorers. And um, yeah, there's pretty similar people. Uh, you will get the people who just want to lose weight and you'll get the people who just want to get a little bit healthier. And then, of course, there's a fair few people who are more extreme. They want to do every single little thing that can improve right. their health and they'll try everything. And they're the real searchers. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's something yeah, more into the, into the areas of biohacking and things like that. Yeah. yeah. 
So maybe like, let's start addressing, you know, the big elephant in the room, which is heart disease. And uh, they say that heart disease is the cause of one out of every four deaths in the United States. And it's one of the most common killers in Western populations. And uh, I don't want to put uh, like immediately spotlight on you and, you know, ask what, what causes heart disease. But uh, maybe can you tell us what's the current situation with this, with this disease? Is it getting worse or is it getting better? Right. Well, over the last couple of decades or a few decades, uh, mortality has improved a little. But you've got to remember that smoking has reduced massively over the past few decades. And also medical procedures and interventions and drugs have helped with uh, mortality. But in terms of morbidity or just getting heart disease and atherosclerosis, uh, a recent report in one of the medical journals called out that uh, the rates of heart disease are increasing beyond our ability to tackle them. Wow. And that's an important point. And figures expected for 2030 in morbidity or amount of heart disease uh, are now going to be realized or maybe 10 years earlier. Wow, wow. So although we've helped yeah, with mortality because of all the procedures and lowered smoking and all these benefits, uh, it's still a massive problem and still the biggest killer in the world today. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of crazy to think about that uh, these, all these um, chronic diseases, they actually come in waves, like huge waves, because of uh, people following certain dietary guidelines and lifestyle habits, like the entire generation usually has similar lifestyle habits and so on. So all these diseases, they come in waves and you can't really predict them when they're going to come and uh, what's going to happen in the future, at least in the short term. Yeah, and a wave, the big wave in the last 20, 30 years, or waves, uh, actually a tsunami at this stage, <laughs> is not just the heart disease, but of course diabetes. That's now, true. diabetes is one of the primary causes of heart disease. It's got the biggest risk factor for calcification and atherosclerosis and heart disease, and it's becoming a massive epidemic. Mm. Uh, recent figures actually suggest that from the CDC in America, really good numbers, they suggest that around 63% of adults in America over 45 years of age have either prediabetes or diabetes. Now, prediabetes, diabetes, they're all really the same thing. It's an arbitrary yeah. cutoff. Yeah. So imagine nearly two thirds of adults over 45 now share one disease process. It mm. makes it the biggest disease process in the world diabetes type 2 diabetes but can you like explain us as well like what's happening with this heart disease like what is causing it and what is making it what what makes it so lethal right so there are many causes and sometimes that's used as an excuse by orthodox people that there's 300 potential causes it's multi-factor and in fairness it is but there's a few big causes so one of the big causes is excessive sugars and refined carbohydrates and vegetable oils, industrial seed oils in the diet. That's one of the big dietary problems. And that disposes towards insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia in your body, which is, is essentially type 2 diabetes. Right. And that is essentially a model for accelerated aging. So when you become hyperinsulinemic and type 2 diabetic, and we agree the majority are in that kind of state, you get oxidative stress, you damage your cholesterol particles, you damage the endothelium on the inside of your artery walls, um, you cause a whole cascade of damage to your whole body. Mm. 
And one of the results of that, the, a big one, is, of course, atherosclerosis, arterial disease, and heart attacks. So that would be the biggest cause in my mind is these bad processed modern foods driving diabetic type dysfunction. That's the biggest driver of right. this cardiovascular disease. Right, right. So like basically heart disease happens when, you're, when your body is trying to heal the damage that is happening inside the blood vessels and it's trying to repair the damage and simply it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't able to do it because it gets accumulated so much the plaques and so on yeah it cannot keep up so we have beautiful systems of repair uh, evolutionary designed and basically though they can't keep up with the massive inputs and bad inputs from our modern diet and and other factors too so calcification for example is a, a really beautiful example of of protecting your body so when you begin to get the plaques and they're like boils in your arterial wall Essentially, calcium is brought in and bone matrix to form bony strengthening in the areas that are possibly exposed to bursting. Mm -hmm. So this calcification is an excellent repair mechanism. And as a result, in a calcification scan, when you see calcium, you know you've got the disease. Right. And more calcium means massively more risk of a heart attack. But, but it's one great example of a protective mechanism but it cannot keep up really with what we're doing today. Uh, evolution was never ready for the last 50 years of, of bad food. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the, the calcification is actually a good thing, a defensive mechanism. It's just that it gets out of hand and uh, too much inflammation. Yeah, exactly. And the calcification can't fix everything. So although the CT scan that shows the calcium has a 20 times risk multiplier for a future heart event if you're high rather than low. It's a great measure of your level of disease, uh, unparalleled. Yeah, the process can't keep up with, with the problem in many people's cases. And tragically then they get a, a, a plaque bursts, a blood clot forms, and they get a sudden stop of oxygen and they get a heart attack and die generally. Right, right. So, but you can't really feel if your arteries are plaqued and uh, there's calcification. You have to get a test, right? Yeah, this is the problem is asymptomatic people, of which most people are asymptomatic. They don't really feel anything or show symptoms. Mm. So you really don't know about this problem until you're dead. <laughs> and that's the tragedy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And particularly, killer. yeah, it's a silent killer mostly. And particularly middle risk people. So People can be low risk from their blood markers or middle risk or high risk. Now, the low risk people who have excellent bloods are pretty safe. And the high risk people who have disaster bloods like cholesterol ratios and high blood sugar, they kind of know they're in trouble. Mm -hmm. But the biggest group in our population is actually called middle risk, which is really, really unfortunate. Those people have some blood risk factors, but big amounts of them have huge risk. If you got a calcium scan, you'd find out. And then there's big amounts of them who have actually quite low risk and the blood risk factors are misleading and they're in good shape. So this is the biggest tragedy is the middle risk group. And that they're the people who need calcification scans to really find out and answer the question, have I got big heart disease or am I relatively healthy? Right, and right. only a scan will really tell you. So what would be like the most effective tests or scans uh, people could take to prevent that? 
Well, yeah, the CT scan of the heart with the CAC score is a five-minute scan, $100 in the States. That's the best possible test because it sees the disease process itself. Mm -hmm. And that's why a high score is maybe 20 times more risk in a person than a zero or a low score. So that's the best test. But then when you get the test, you then need to say, okay, if you're a high score, I've got a lot of disease today. This score built up over the past maybe 10 years. Uh, it's up to me to change the future. So if you can do things to stop your score rising in the next few years, you don't need to reduce it. You just need to stop it rising. And that means you've stopped the inflammatory processes that drive calcium. And then you can change your future and live probably as long as anyone else without disease. But the key thing is to do the right things. If you do the right things, you can measure your bloods then until your next scan and, and see that they improve to track your short, medium-term progress. Good bloods to track are blood glucose and blood insulin. Um, HbA1c is another good one. And the ratios of the cholesterol panel. So LDL is not so useful, but if you look at the triglyceride divided by the HDL from your cholesterol panel, that's a really good measure. Mm -hmm. And uh, you also have measures like GGT is a liver enzyme, a common measurement. That's a great one to have low. And serum ferritin, the iron loading in your blood, is a fantastic test uh, that when it's very high, it indicates inflammation and metabolic right. syndrome or insulin resistance. So there are a whole range of these blood tests that are actually very good to track your progress until you get your next scan and hopefully verify that it's similar to the last one a few years before and that you have successfully slowed or stopped the progression of the disease. And if you do that, you actually, your risk plummets hmm. down like a person with no disease. That's the key thing. You need to stop the progressive disease yeah. and then you actually have a very good outlook. Yeah, yeah. The, all of those things are actually very yeah, linked and you can expect to have more plaques if let's say your blood sugar is higher and you have higher inflammation in general, then you can already expect that there is going to be some more plaques and uh, calcification. Absolutely. And it's a risk game. The more plaque, the more risk that one will burst. And of course, the more calcification, the more plaque. But yeah, yeah blood glucose, uh, blood sugar rising, especially after a meal, if you get a little blood glucose meter, and an hour after a meal, your blood glucose is rising quite high, like above six millimole or above 120 milligrams in American units, you can pretty much say that was not a good meal I had. Yeah. So it's a great short-term check. And uh, insulin, of course, is a fantastic measure too. After you drink glucose or, or eat a meal, yeah. it'll indicate if you're hyperinsulin, which really will drive plaque formation. Yeah, yeah that's true. But uh, what, does, what role does cholesterol play in this, in, in the calcification? Yeah, that's a, a lot of people are interested in cholesterol because it's been hyped for 50 years. Yeah. Uh, the cholesterol, I would see as more involved with the response to injury so that when you are doing bad things, bad diet and, and not getting healthy sun and not getting magnesium and all these bad causes of heart disease, uh, your cholesterol particles can get damaged, hmm. oxidized. So your cholesterol system is engaged in immune response. It reacts to inflammation. 
the particles can get damaged and then become part of the problem. Mm. So I think the mistake that was made over the decades was they viewed cholesterol as a simple cause, higher is worse, mm. and it's actually not really, it's confounded. Higher can indicate that you have an underlying problem going on. Higher can mean you have more damaged particles, cholesterol particles, engaging in the problem. So there's lots of ways cholesterol's involved, but one key thing to take away is the ratios of those cholesterol numbers are much more powerful indicators of a problem than just looking at the cholesterol or the LDL bad cholesterol on its own. Mm. And the reason is the ratios are great markers for underlying a metabolic oxidative stress, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. So the ratios are the best you can take from a standard cholesterol panel. They're pretty good indicators of your health. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, like low-carb, high-fat diets, they tend to raise your cholesterol a little bit, but you can't take it like out of context and look at just the cholesterol. You have to look at all the ratios, like you said. And does, does, does a higher cholesterol number, would, would it automatically mean that your risk of heart disease would also go up? Yeah, just higher bad cholesterol, LDL, is, is not so useful. Um, the system is obsessed with it, but one point that might be useful for people is many years ago, they took the LDL cholesterol out of the risk uh, calculators. Mm. So if people realized that LDL is gone, from the official risk calculators for heart disease, it's not in there. The ratios are used mainly. So even though they've taken LDL out of the risk calculators, um, the Q risk, and then there's another ASCVD, I think, uh, they're still letting everyone think that the LDL is the big important thing. Mm -hmm. But it's gone from the risk calculators because it's a very weak predictor. So it's a big mistake to just look at one value, like you say, especially when you've picked the weakest value. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, too much focus on LDL. Yeah, like, and also like Dave Feldman is doing a lot of research and work about how LDL is completely irrelevant to heart disease almost. And uh, it's not indicative of almost anything, in the, <laughs> at least what, not, not what we think it, it does. I think exactly, Seem. Yeah, it's not what we think it was. Um, I did the cholesterol conundrum lecture. It's free on YouTube back in 2014, and it explains all the system. And Dave, as you say, is now doing incredible testing on many people to prove out these points and his new theories. But I think it could be best said that a high particle count number of your LDL particles is a good risk indicator. But it can be high because of insulin resistance mm -hmm. and metabolic disease, and then it will track with disease. And Dave is making the point especially that it can also be high because you're using the particles to traffic fat-based energy. Yeah. So the cholesterol particles have many, many functions. Uh, they bring cholesterol around your body, but mostly they bring triglyceride around to distribute energy. Mm. And you may have a high value because you've got a serious metabolic problem and, and a high value can mean a, a bad thing, no doubt. But you can also have a high value, like you say, these people who, who make a lot more particles when they're on a low carb, healthy fat diet because mm -hmm. they're trafficking more triglyceride for energy. So those people could be a high particle number and be very healthy. 
So a measure that can be bad when it's high or perfectly fine when it's high is a very poor measure to use. Yeah. And this is the challenge we'll see in the coming years coming out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, like, uh, like I said, in, basically you can have high LDL, whether because of eating the standard American diet or eating a lot of a high fat diet or, you know, doing some intermittent fasting or something like that, that can also affect it. So it's completely almost out of context. Yes, it's ambiguous in the extreme. And, and that's really a killer. Engineering measurements uh, should be dependable uh, in my world. So to give a contrast, I often say this to people, uh, the particle counter LDL can be bad when it's high or it can be perfectly fine when it's high. Mm. Um, also, when the LDL is low, you can have massive disease. The Heinz Nixdorf study showed that, that mm -hmm. guys with the most calcification and atherosclerosis, really high disease, had the same LDL as the guys with the minimal disease. Yeah. So it's ambiguous. Yeah. But if you look at insulin, that's a proper engineering measure because higher is generally always worse. Yeah, yeah. And blood pressure, higher is always worse. They're consistent and dose response. And the reason is because they're much more related to the cause. So higher is generally always worse for you. Yeah. And they are proper measures. They're the ones that should be mainly focused on. Yeah, it's good. It's good to have some engineering uh, ideas and engineering perspectives in, in nutrition. <laughs> More doctors yeah. could use it, actually. Yeah, well, we've got a few doctors like Mike Eads in the US and Ted Naiman and Dr. Bernstein, the type 1 diabetic in his 80s. And all of those guys and more were engineers originally and became doctors. So I think that's the best possible combination <laughs> is engineering discipline followed by doing medicine. Yeah, and that's yeah. why these guys are so great, you know. And in my case, I have Dr. Jeff Gerber, my co-author. So I have not done medicine, hands up. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have a great relationship and collaboration with Dr. Gerber. Mm -hmm. So between us, we have all his clinical experience and his research and patient experience. And we meet, uh, we perfectly align on everything we talk about and our book uh, because we've all, we've done the work yeah, yeah it's it's really good but uh, what about uh, vitamin d and uh, calcium supplements how, do, how how can they contribute to calcification right well i the calcium supplements they had a a big problem 20 years ago i think where they were giving a lot of calcium supplements and people actually had a higher rate of heart disease hmm. so the calcium i would get it from natural whole real foods and not supplement excessively with calcium. Yeah. So there is some evidence that excessive calcium and being too low on magnesium to balance it and other minerals is a bad thing. Vitamin D also interacts with all these minerals and many, many processes in the body. So the ideal would be to get healthy vitamin D from healthy sun exposure or vitamin D rich foods, or even like a UV lamp. There are UV lamps available. And the UV and the skin does more than create vitamin D. It, create, it releases nitric oxide to keep your vascular health in great shape. It causes vasodilation, mm. which expands your vessels and, and helps with health. So ideally, you'll get you know, vitamin D from sun and UV exposure without burning and get all the other benefits that come with that evolutionary process. Yeah. But that said, 
yeah, get your vitamin D, uh, ideally from food or sun, if necessary, from supplements. Don't really take calcium supplements unless you've got a specific issue identified by the doctor where you're low on calcium. And make sure you get magnesium. So from magnesium-rich foods or magnesium citrate can be bought in half kilo bags and mixed with food and the whole family can get magnesium. It's estimated that 70% of modern people may be magnesium insufficient because the foods have lowered in magnesium over the last century. So magnesium is an important one to keep in mind when we're talking calcium and vitamin D as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's indeed. Most people are deficient of it. And uh, yeah, there are, there are also some other nutrients that also affect this. Like if you simply take calcium supplements or if you eat more calcium-rich foods, then the calcium is simply going to sit in your bloodstream for longer and your body doesn't really know what to do with it. So there are some, some, some key new ingredients and nutrients for directing the calcium in the right place are things like vitamin K2 and the other fat-soluble vitamins. And uh, yeah, you need to get like vitamin k2 as well if you take calcium otherwise it's simply gonna your body really doesn't know what to do with it and you know yeah like regions where people eat a lot of calcium they still have the highest rates of uh, bone fractures and so on so they're still like they're not getting the vitamin k2 and the other activators exactly and k2 is another important one and vitamin a as you say the fat soluble vitamins so K2, you can get from cheeses and butters, from, from animals that have eaten the fresh grass. Yeah. And you can get it from things like natto, the bean curd from Japan has huge rates of it, and supplements. Mm. So yeah, you organ need meats, Organ meats as well. Organ meats as well, actually. Yeah, very good point. Organ meats are super healthy, especially when they're co- not overly cooked. They're absolutely full of nutrients. And cod liver oil is another place to get some of these sat uh, fat-soluble vitamins and A and uh, D and and other elements. So I think balance is important and ideally real food Mm. rather than supplements, I would target. But yeah, they all work synergistically and many more besides. So it's not as simple as just shoving calcium in Mm. and you're absolutely right. It won't really help with bone. Magnesium and vitamin D and others are also hugely important. Now, There is one thing worth mentioning. The calcification in your arteries is, I would say, a a protective bone matrix formation to protect the artery or attempt to. Mm. Uh, The idea that K2 magically stops the calcium going into your arteries and causing damage is maybe a little misleading. Mm. Uh, So the K2 will help with many of the body's processes and will help to reduce atherosclerosis but I don't think it's just because it stops the calcium getting into the artery. Uh, it's more it contributes to systemic health and lower inflammation in many different ways. Mm. But yeah, that's just a small point, really. Yeah, mm. yeah because if, if it's, there is indeed inflammation, then the body will still use uh, that calcium to create the protection against, against the inflammation. Yeah. But what about the idea of you know, meat and eggs giving you heart disease. We talked about these, the, that these foods are rich in these fat-soluble vitamins and vitamin K and so on. But you know, wh- wh- where's the discrepancy? Yeah, there's a pretty enormous discrepancy there, Sim. <laughs> um, so really sh- short story on that is we know in the 50s and 60s, they felt that cholesterol was contributing to heart disease. 
and then they realized that eating more of these fats could could raise the blood cholesterol not consistently even but sort of mm. uh, so the work done by Ansel Keys with the six and seven countries study was very poor science but it showed a correlation with more fat in the diet and higher heart disease mm. now of course there was also a great correlation with sugars and there was a great correlation with being further north and getting mm. lower UV and sun but the he picked the fat one he was very charismatic. He got himself on very important boards of organizations in the US and he dominated the scene. Yeah. And he basically got the whole world to believe this idea. And because they've been pushing this idea for many decades and the food industry is built on this idea now and pharmaceutical industries benefit from all the disease that occurs from poor food, Everyone has a stake in keeping that idea alive. Right. And we've also, yeah, we've also got, not to forget, it's not conspiracy and industry. We've also got the pride of all the researchers and doctors who said this for 50 years. They have a massive stake in not being shown publicly to be incorrect. Yeah. So there's huge psychological kind of resistance to the idea that everyone was wrong. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's like some sort of a, I think it's called like the consistency bias or something that once you adopted a certain belief, then you don't want to let go of it. And even if you have like uh, conflicting evidence right in front of you, then you simply want to ignore it and keep on hammering away at the, at the, at the evidence that you previously had. At all costs, yes. Yeah. I think confirmation bias where you believe something and you always look at the data that, that confirms your belief and you hate the data and you lock it out that, that conflicts. But the interesting thing here is one of the fathers of the scientific method, Professor Dr. Carl Popper, went through all of this a long time back and he said that you can always find more and more confirmatory evidence that says your hypothesis is correct well, all of that evidence added together does not prove your hypothesis. And importantly, one contradiction piece of evidence does stand alone. So if you have one con contradiction to your hypothesis, it truly is powerful. Contradictory evidence is powerful, much more powerful than all the little bits of evidence that say you're right. One thing that says you're wrong he said, you must find that thing to fix your hypothesis. And we know with the fat and heart disease, there are scores of conflicting pieces of evidence. So the theory is dead. Yeah. Uh, higher fat with higher refined carb together in a diet, the classic standard American diet mm. with high fat and high carb is a problem metabolically. No question. Mm. But higher healthy fats while keeping no processed food or sugars or vegetable fats, keeping the bad things low, that's where Professor Volokh and Finney and all the others, countless human studies have shown that everything gets healthier and better with that kind of diet. So they made a huge mistake by blaming the fat for what the refined carb and sugars did. Yeah, there are also like a, a ton of these Aboriginal tribes who eat the high-fat diet, like the Maasai and Inuit, and they don't have heart disease. And they only get heart disease if they start eating the Western diet in conjunction with their ancestral diet. So yeah, there's this something mysterious that happens in the metabolism when you put sugar in the mix and insulin. So can you know like what is what is the what is this missing piece that is causing all the issues? 
Um, well, that is the missing piece, essentially, is that the synergy between different foodstuffs. So if you take in refined flour, wheat flour, refined carbohydrate and sugar, essentially it, it provokes a, a gut hormone in your upper gut called GIP, which is a glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, <laughs> so a big word. <laughs> um, but basically this GIP is in your upper gut and it gets very excited by refined carbs and sugars. And it triggers insulin release to try and manage the problem. And it also gets your fat cells primed for fat storage. And it speaks to bone and, and lots of other things as well. So think GIP, you want to not stimulate it too much. The other side is lower in your intestine. You have GLP-1 and PYY. And these are hormones that help your pancreas function. They help with satiety. So your appetite is controlled and they're low in the gut. Mm -hmm. And you really want to eat foods that move down your gut, do not explode the GIP up here, but move down your gut, slowly digested, and they excite the more beneficial hormones. And they keep right. the balance of the hormones good. Right. And the modern foods like flour, sugars, and processed foods full of full of both. Uh, unfortunately, they completely imbalance the gut hormones, tend towards hyperinsulin and fat storage, and put you on the road to disaster. And if you eat lots of fats with them, it just makes it worse. Yeah. So it's just the, the, the worst thing you can do. Interestingly, we've got these old ancestral tribes, like you said, who are now destroyed with sugar and flour and vegetable oils. But when they were eating low-carb, high-healthy-fat diets, they were in great shape. Yeah. And we've also got higher-carb ancestral tribes who are eating not so much fat and higher-carb, but it was all unprocessed carb yeah. that actually travels down your gut and does not do the damage that I described. Yeah. So if you're a population that have no metabolic disease and you're in great shape, you can handle a higher natural-carbs diet. The problem we have nowadays, and this is, I think, a key point, now that the majority of our population has the metabolic damage of type 2 diabetes, some form of it, they can no longer easily go back to an ancestral high good carb diet because now they've been sensitized right. Right. and they are damaged. Yeah. And that's why we always go with low carb because it's a very healthy diet and it caters to the metabolically damaged majority in our world today and makes it easy for them to recover their health. It's very hard to get them to eat an ancestral higher carb, healthy carb diet because they're already carb intolerant and right. they've been damaged. So yeah, this yeah. is, yeah. So they're like completely insulin resistant. Yes, they have problems with carbohydrate metabolism. And even if they go low carb and their insulin resistance gets better and they recover their health, that's great for their health outlook. However, if they reintroduce the carbs, their machine is still damaged. You can't completely fix it like an ancestral tribe. There's a molecular memory in your body that when you've become diabetic, even when you fix all the symptoms with low carb, you've reduced your risk you're going to feel great and lose weight. It's all great. However, you have not fully fixed your machine for most people. The machine is still going to kind of blow up if you start putting the bad thing back in again. Right.
So yeah, it's sensitized. Is it completely irreversible or permanent? It appears that um, there are some people who can essentially reverse it almost completely and they haven't sustained lasting damage. But it would look like a large proportion of people, once they're damaged, they're damaged. And if they ever reintroduce some bad foods again, their blood glucose will flare up and their blood insulin. So I think it's safer to assume that that's the state you're in and always stay from now on on a low-carb, high-healthy-fat diet and always eat the right thing and make it a habit for life. Then you won't have to worry about the heart attacks, the, the type 3 diabetes, Alzheimer's. Yeah. That's huge today. Yeah. Cancers, uh, COPD, uh, all the modern diseases. I have a recent paper which looked at all the modern diseases with respect to metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance syndrome. And it took around 400 studies and it got down to around 50 or 60 that uh, had insulin measured, which is the really important measure. Mm. And what they found was across all the range of modern diseases and all these studies, insulin, I think in 67 out of 70 papers, the people with the disease showed up with higher insulin. So it's just an indication that this hyperinsulinemia is a is basically a scourge in the world that that is connected to not just heart disease but but a whole range of our modern diseases mm. you know it really is tragic that they're not measuring it and they're measuring cholesterol mm. which only really weakly predicts heart disease which is yeah. one disease mm. yeah. yeah yeah like we all at least like if we were to look at it from an engineering perspective again then we, if we, if we base our understanding of you know what we know so far, then we know that insulin is like a pro-storage hormone that uh, directs nutrients in the, into the cells. And uh, yeah, if you raise insulin all the time too much, then it will will lead to like fat gain and the other metabolic issues. So it's kind of funny to kind of we go into these other other biomarkers that aren't directly linked to to like the accumulation of disease and other ailments. Yeah, it's a tragedy. And and one reason is that, well, as we said earlier, you know, the whole world was looking at cholesterol. Also, cholesterol could easily be measured and all the research money went into enhancing measures and glucose was easy to measure. So they kind of called type 2 diabetes a glucose disease when really it's an insulin disease. Now we do have good insulin measures and we know how important it is. It's too late to change the world a little um everyone's married to the the old ideas it's a tough one but you're right the whole insulin dynamics relates so intimately to all our modern diseases um it really is a pity we're we're not measuring them i mean even to give just one other example it promotes fat storage for sure and it's the nutrient balancer hormone but also when your endothelium the lining of your artery becomes insulin resistant insulin can no longer work to help with the health of your artery. Mm. So it, insulin resistance affects all the body's tissues in different ways, and it's nearly always a, a bad thing. It's just such an important thing that we should be talking more about. The elephant in the room, I think. Yeah, yeah, that is. I'm addressing the white elephant in the room. But uh, what about fructose and uh, eating fruit? Does fruit have the same effect? Right. This is one that's debated. So fructose, if you're a healthy person with a healthy metabolism 
Um, having fructose as part of fruit should be no problem. Uh, if you're a person with diabetic dysfunction, however, eating excessive glucose, carb, and fructose together would appear to be kind of a double whammy and something you should not do. Now, it is debated. They have done experiments on monkeys, rhesus monkeys, where excessive fructose over two years, and monkeys are very close to us, of course. It's not like mice. Mm. Uh, caused nearly all of them to get metabolic syndrome and some of them to get full diabetes in two wow. years. Wow. So there's, there's evidence that excessive fructose can be really problematic. But I think you know, moderate levels of fructose taken in whole foods, unless you're very diseased, it should not really be a huge problem. Now, there is one other little thing that the fruits we ate thousands of years ago were in season only a couple of months a year yeah. and they were relatively low sugar and low fructose compared to modern fruits yeah. now we have one modern fruits that are bred for sugar to make them more palatable and, and appealing to sell more and we get them shipped by airplanes and boats all over the world so we can eat them all year round so that's a huge experiment that's being done in the past hundred years feeding people high sugar fruits all year round and I think it's not a good idea when you, when you do that. Yeah, yeah, it's so true that fruit was less sweet in the past than it is now. And uh, it was smaller in size as well. It had more seeds, had more fiber, less fructose. And uh, when you look at like su supermarket GMO fruit, then all of them are very large in terms of like they, they have a lot of flesh and uh, no seeds almost at all. It's filled with extra fructose. And you can't really say that humans... At, you know that you know in the past humans would eat some fruit and that we should all eat like a fruit-based diet because the fruit isn't the same and the macronutrient ratios are also very distinctive absolutely and i mean i've heard fruit called nature's candy and in the past it maybe was a little bit like nature's candy <laughs> and desirable but nowadays it really is approaching candy yeah. uh, by by breeding as you say to rack up the sugar and kind of back off on the more fibrous seed aspects. It, it's not, not ideal. Yeah, and especially if you, you, can, you can get it like year round, it's, that's definitely not natural. I'm surrounded by diabetes. That's a big factor that people sometimes miss. And I think the best thing is to eat it in reasonable quantities and raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, and all the berry fruits that are still more like what we ate in the past. And, and don't go crazy with it, especially if you've got weight issues or diabetic issues and you're having challenges fixing your metabolism. It's not a good idea to shove in lots of fructose. Uh, it, it doesn't make any sense. You can get your nutrients and a lot better from many other foods. Yeah, that's true. So what would be like good foods to eat uh, that would uh, at least alleviate the, the accumulation of calcification in the arteries? Right. So I always kind of keep it simple, like as in fatty meat, fish, eggs, they're all real ancestral evolutionary foods. Uh, olives are natural fatty fruits, you know, and the oil from olives. Um, that's an example of an avocado, again, a natural fruit that's fatty and not bringing in problematic sugars, uh, especially for people with an issue of weight or diabetes. Uh, I mean, that's just a handful. Uh, and organ meats, as you mentioned, are, are excellent. And if you don't really like liver, you can get pate and, yeah, and get a yeah, taste for good. pate, which 
Yeah, it's a very easy way to have all the benefits of liver and the fat-soluble vitamins. Yeah. So there's a whole range of these natural foods which you can eat. And then it's not too hard to know the bad foods either. So refined carbohydrate products, which include breads and pastas and all of these modern processed foods, because bread is a processed food. I know it goes yeah. back thousands of years, but nowadays it's a processed bread for you know, a myelopectin A, high refined carb product. Yeah. Um, and then the vegetable oils, the seed oils, you don't want to be eating these laboratory concocted <laughs> kind of fake fats almost, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's lots of science showing how they over the long term can be inflammatory and damaging, even if they give a little advantage in the short term for a sad diet eater. If you replace saturated fat with these seed oils, they show a short-term over a couple of years reduction, and we kind of know the mechanism. It's no good in the long term, mm. you know? Yeah. So uh, I think any of the processed foods nowadays, or most of them, include seed oils, refined carbohydrates, and sugars. So mm. the whole class of modern ultra-processed foods is something you need to wean yourself off and just, just get away from them and eat, yeah. eat real food. That's true. But what about these, uh, let's say, these foods that are natural, but they cause some issues for some people, like, uh, let's say, some beans or grains or, or lectins or oxalates or whatever they may be? Do they have, like, can they contribute to the, to the heart disease just because of causing inflammation in the gut or something? I would say yes. Uh, there's a book called The Plant Paradox by Gundry uh, recently, which the vegetarians and vegans did not like it, but he goes through all of what you just mentioned. So sure, the lectins in certain plant products and different humans will react differently. Some people will be more sensitive than others, but there's a lining on your arterial inner wall in the lumen that protects it. And it has been demonstrated that plant lectins can strip that lining. Okay. So this is just one example. There are many, many plant products that can cause leaky gut and irritate the lining, uh, the entero, uh, kind of, there's enterocytes that, that sense what you're eating and allow nutrients through your gut into your body. And if you damage that gut lining, then you can let through proteins and immune-provoking uh, elements through leaky gut. And this could be a major source of modern disease also. And what causes leaky gut is almost always some form of plant foods right. with foreign proteins and, and other aggravators that cause your gut to become inflamed. And, and celiac disease is just one example that's well known, right? Yeah. Their, their guts get destroyed because of gluten and, and other. So I think long story short, many plant foods are problematic, so you gotta be really careful with them. But if we now go back to what I said at the start, fatty meat, fish, eggs, olives, right? They're not going to harm your gut. Hmm. So the real ancestral foods, yeah. you know, of our evolution don't, don't harm our gut. Yeah. So it's not to be anti-plant, but to acknowledge that most problematic foods are from the plant world. Yeah. Let's true. be honest. Yeah. Yeah. They're not meat, fish, eggs at all. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> because if you do eat only like these ancestral foods without the potential inflammation, then you're not going to cause any issues to your digestion almost, almost at all. Yeah, and if you resolve digestion issues and leaky gut, then you're going to cut out a whole class of root causes of disease 
by fixing your gut. Yeah. Um, so I would always say, and I, I think Jordan Peterson is becoming a very famous figure across the world now, the Canadian professor and his daughter, Michaela, and they've both gone to a pretty much carnivore diet, not yeah. because they're crazy carnivores, but they realized they had a genetic sensitivity, many issues with depression, neurological problems, inflammation. Uh, Michaela had to get her joints fixed and replaced in her twenties. Yeah. And they discovered that the only way they could get to a truly healthy state that was completely safe was to eliminate all of the plant foods. Right. And if someone has a major medical issue, that's not a bad way to go. Go right down to pure ancestral foods, no, no real plant foods, and then slowly add back in the plant foods, starting with the safest ones like broccoli or cauliflower, mm. which are relatively benign. And add them back in carefully, yeah. um, and then you can find out what what ones cause you a problem. I mean that that's a very reasonable engineering approach to a to a major issue. It's an elimination approach, and then slow, careful reintroduction. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, because I think yeah, unless you have like a serious condition, then you you shouldn't want to go like completely zero carb or zero plants. You you want to have like at least some form of uh, good vegetables and these other other plant products that have like at least some health benefits yeah and i mean i'm low carb i eat broccoli cauliflower you know i eat meat and veg or fish and veg or eggs and veg the veg is always there because i think it brings in a lot of nutrients and uh, we don't need to be zero i think zero is more for people who have persistent issues mm -hmm. who need to go further uh, and that's their choice and it works for them and that's great but um yeah, in general, a meat and veg type diet is, is evolutionary appropriate. Once you're not eating refined carbs or refined plant-based starches, sugars, or, or seed oils, you know, a lot of vegetables are going to bring in some good and they're not going to cause a problem for a lot of people, yeah. Yeah, but how is the uh, Irish traditional diet? Like, is it something like uh, steak and potatoes or... <laughs> well, yeah, the Irish, the potato is uh, an Irish thing going way, way back because the people in Ireland, relatively poor as hundreds of years ago, they needed cheap energy yeah. uh, from food that was easily accessible. And the potatoes were the poor man's food. They became part of the culture. Uh, but the people hundreds of years ago, they were working really hard to survive. They were out in the sun whenever it was available because they had to be. Um, they were stayed slim and, and strong um, and they were eating rabbit and lots of fish and, and lots of game and lots of other nutrient dense foods. So I think they lived a type of lifestyle that getting quite a proportion of your um, calories from potatoes did not create a major issue. Hmm. Whereas nowadays, a 45 year old mildly diabetic accountant working in, in, in an office, potatoes are not a good idea for that guy, yeah. right? So things have yeah. changed. Once your metabolism becomes deranged, which is most modern people, now you gotta be really careful with those ancestral carbohydrates. Um, interestingly in potatoes, if you eat them raw, they're fine, they're resistant mm -hmm. starch. Mm -hmm. If you uh, boil them, they're worse, <laughs> but if you bake them, they get really bad. Right. And the blood glucose and insulin response is much higher if you bake them yeah. because you, you can affect starchy foods. You can hugely affect how bad they are for you by how you process them. 
cooking them, as I described, but if you mechanically refine them into powders, they become super explosive bad news for any human. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And also like cooking and cooling them in the fridge, that's going to increase the resistant starch, right? And lower the glucose. that is a really cool one. I know it came out a little while back that with pasta and potatoes and these starches, if you cook them and then you cool them down and then you, you can warm them back up again to eat or eat them in potato salad. Mm-hmm. Yes, the cooking and cooling turns the molecular structure into resistant starch, which is pretty benign. So mm-hmm. that's another way to enjoy potatoes is to cook them once and then cool the, boil them and then cool them down and then just warm them up with your dinner and there'll be lower blood glucose and insulin responses. The other thing you can do is eat the carb after you've eaten all your fatty meat and your protein. So eat your fat and protein first and at at the end of the meal have some carb if you want it. And that actually makes a much lower blood sugar response also by eating it afterwards. But I think these tricks if you really must have your carb, you can play with these tricks. I find it easier now to just eat the meat or fish and veg and just stay away. It's just easier in the long term. Just stay away a bit. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's just like some people, they tend to do better with slightly higher carbs if they have like some sort of, let's say they're working out harder or if they do have like a higher sensitivity to carbs, then they can still, still play around with it in some extent. And, you know, it doesn't say that all potatoes are bad or all carbs are bad. It's, yeah, it's a matter of context and the, and the host's body and their medical conditions. Exactly, yeah. It's all context depending on your personal makeup, in fairness. Yeah, that's mm. true. Meat or potatoes. How do you maintain yourself or you, how do you maintain your health when you're traveling and giving all these speeches? It must be quite difficult and uh, stressful. It is. It's tough. And time zones and circadian rhythm affects all of this health scene as well. So it is tough. But uh, what I generally do is I I do quite a bit of fasting when I'm traveling. And Mm -hmm. that counteracts the problems. If you're eating a lot in restaurants, of course, you're not sure that they did not put in seed oils cooking the food. Uh, But generally, I stick to, again, meat, fish and some small amount of veg. And uh, I try and eat like I normally would when I'm traveling, but you can't trust restaurants fully for what they use. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So I think quite a bit of fasting is, it helps with jet lag, it helps with mental acuity and with regaining sleep patterns. Fasting is kind of good for everything. <laughs> it's just <laughs> yeah, it magical, is. you you know? Um, so quite a bit of fasting on these big grueling trips, I find one of the most powerful little tools to, to help. Yeah. yeah. It completely fixes jet lag and uh, you, get, you get to avoid all the potential dangers altogether and it's so much easier to simply fast. Yeah, it's, it's a cool trick for, for traveling. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, but but uh, let's say if someone has um, seen that their calcification scores are too high and they have like plaques formating there, c- could it be that uh, they can reverse it? And uh, what, what could they do to, you know not die (laughs) yeah that's the big game um well the thing is we have in our book eat rich live long we have kind of 10 rules for health and they're the same 10 rules for helping with high degrees of plaque if you have them Mm -hmm. first point is if you have a very high degree of plaque it's important from this day onwards what you do and you don't need to 
lower your calcium score, it would appear from the data, you just need to stop the score rising in the coming years. Mm -hmm. So generally people, when their calcification is rising, they'll go up 20 or 30% a year. They'll keep doing what they're doing, it keeps going up and accelerates until their heart attack and death. If you, however, get a score of 900, like my uh, supporter, David Bobbitt, who got into this whole game years ago, you need to try and make it not increase by more than a few percent a year. Mm-hmm. So instead of going 900, 1100, 1400, like most people would, you need to go 900, 940, 960, you know, 1000 and slow the progression. That's what he achieved, an average of a 4% per year in the last six years. And if you stop that progression, you will get risk level dropping right down nearly to someone who has a low score in the first place. Mm -hmm. So that's important for us to know. You don't need to lower it, really. You need to stop it increasing. Mm -hmm. The things to do it are, well, some of what we mentioned. So we say low carb, um, high healthy fats, full of nutrition, uh, moderate protein or higher protein if you're working out, again, from ancestral nutrient-dense foods, uh, no vegetable oils, no processed food, refined carb, sugars. Uh, Then we have three S's as sun, sleep, and stress. So ideally, you'll get healthy sun exposure without burning. That will give many benefits. Mm. Sleep, you'll get good sleep. Poor sleep has been proven to raise insulin, raise cortisol, and many problematic hormonal issues in the body. Mm -hmm. And stress, ideally, avoid chronic stress because that screws up your metabolic and hormonal pathways also. And I'm trying to think stress exercise, we we would say is probably the best bang for the book. So press up squats, 20, 30 minutes, couple of times a week, maybe more beneficial per per minute than running and things like that. So there's a place for that too. And then uh, vitamins, minerals, so magnesium, potassium, K2, a uh, reasonably amount of vitamin C, vitamin D. And we list out all the, bit, the vitamins and minerals because as a friend of ours once said, your body is the most complex chemistry set in the universe. And it needs a whole range of inputs at roughly the right level to keep it functioning and avoid disease. And we ignore most of them. Yeah. I mean, we look at cholesterol, we ignore all these, these crucial minerals and vitamins that are part of health. Yeah. Um, so that's that's an, I, I don't know if I got all 10 but that's kind of our, our book we'll leave, some, great, we'll leave some for the book as well <laughs> yeah well the book uh, goes into great detail on the calcification cholesterol and everything that we've touched on and a full plan and 50 recipes from a professional chef low carb recipes in full nice. color so we kind of put everything into that book over a couple of years mm-hmm. <laughs> where can people uh, find it and what's the title well, it's Eat Rich, Live Long, and Amazon all over the world has it. And in America, Costco, Barnes & Noble, and bookstores in Europe too, but less so. Mm. Amazon is probably the easiest for people nowadays, and it's on Kindle too. And it covers pretty much everything. We're very happy with it. Yeah, it's pretty good. And uh, where can people learn more about uh, you and your specific work? Right. Well, my, if you Google Ivor Cummins, it's probably easiest. Just Google it. You'll see my YouTube, my blog, my Facebook, Twitter. Mm. I'm quite active on all of them. 
So that's the easiest way to get the hits. The YouTube channel is good because when you scroll back, there's tons of interviews and talks and they're all free. And uh, there's a lot of knowledge in there, not just mine, but what I've benefited from my worldwide network of professors, researchers, and doctors in the past six years. You know, we're able to combine all our thoughts and, and hone our hypothesis and, and get a better overall answer for people than one person working on their own. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's really good. And a ton of, uh, a wide variety of experts topic, you're talking about different stuff. But uh, you're actually also going, coming to speak at the Biohacker Summit in Tallinn this September as well, right? Yeah, Estonia, and I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. I've never been over that direction, so I'll get some new material and throw it in there. And, but it might be a different audience than the classic low-carb as well, which is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a slightly different audience, you think? Yeah, it's the, it's the, it, low-carb isn't that uh, popular in Estonia at the moment yet. And, uh, oh. and we, I, I think we don't have like, a ton of health problems either. So, but I still think it's a good, good perspective to know of, you know, what causes heart disease and uh, how to prevent it. Yeah. And get longevity. So even if you don't have huge amounts of disease, it's always nice to live longer, stronger yeah. and lower yeah. the chances of a, you don't want a crappy old age either. So yeah. I often say to people, it's not just about living longer. You know, if you're just going to be dribbling in a wheelchair, it's, you might get an extra, someone who currently has disease like diabetes, you might get an extra 10 or 15 years, which is fantastic by, by doing what we say. But the key thing is your next 30 or 40 years, every day will be higher quality. You'll be fitter, more mental acuity. You'll be slimmer. You'll feel better. You'll be more productive. So it's not just extending life. It's making yourself much more viable and vibrant and vital for, for enjoying your life. That's key. That's that's true. Yeah, like uh, it doesn't matter how long you live if it if it all sucks. <laughs> true. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, really, really want to thank you for coming on this show. And my last question is: uh, What's the one piece of advice or a habit uh, that you wish you had adopted sooner that improved your body and your mind? Oh well, besides just low carb, which dramatically mm-hmm. changed my health. Um, I wish I had applied my my industrial expertise much earlier because from my 20s to my mid 40s I put on a lot of weight and uh if I had have applied my technical expertise from my day job in complex problem solving and all those skills to just looking at nutrition I could have led a much more healthy and 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 a much better life for the previous 20 years so yeah, I, I maybe wish I had looked sooner at things that are really important that I didn't didn't think enough about. Hmm. Yeah, well, uh, at least at least you got it fixed right now, <laughs> so things are looking I, good. Yeah, and I actually still ha- I have a zero score calcification score at the wow. age forty eight, wow. and my co-author Jeffrey Doctor Gerber has a zero at fifty six. So, but That's he's been low carb for twenty years. Wow. But I was lucky to still have a zero given my lifestyle so now now i get to to keep that zero by staying on track for hopefully the next 30 years yeah it's looking good for you hopefully (laughs) though you can you can never say never no matter how good you do there are always diseases and issues that can occur anyway you know no one no one's bulletproof really exactly exactly yeah all we can do is uh, simply prepare ourselves and keep ourselves healthy 
yeah yeah well yeah thanks cyber for coming on the podcast and uh i really got a lot of valuable information from it and i believe like all the people as well learned a ton so thank you thanks a lot sim we'll see you soon we'll see you <laughs> That's it for this episode of the Body, Mind & Power podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on the iTunes or the other social media platforms. Definitely check out the show notes for the topics that we discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.